Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Scott. That's me. And Craig. Say, boys, was it either one of you ever bit by a dead bee? <laughs> In this episode, we're going to be looking at the work of one of the best regarded and most successful directors of Hollywood's golden age, Howard Hawks. He directed 40 films over nearly four decades, from 1926 to 1970, which is pretty good going given that every man in Hollywood at that time was seemingly physically about 30 years older than people of the same age now. Humphrey Bogart in particular really had some city miles in him, as we'll see later. Uh, but, but, oh dear. But that's for Hawks. Hawks himself worked in a number of different and disparate genres. And rather than being associated with a particular film type, he is, perhaps, most well known for the tough, plain-talking female characters that have become a movie archetype known, appropriately enough, as Hoxian women. As to the films we're covering, we'd like to claim thoughtful planning went into our selections for this episode, but to lie is a sin. And in fact, it came together through a combination of Scott wanted to see this one, I wanted to see this one, I've seen that one before, I hope it's still good, and we've heard of that one, that'll do. <laughs> Serendipitously, however, this scattershot approach has managed to provide us with a slice of Hawk's work across 20 years, and which takes in the gangster, screwball comedy, biopic, wartime romance drama, noir detective and musical genres, so I think we're doing pretty well. This sampling of Hawks's career should then, hopefully, be enough to give us a good flavour of his work and allow us to answer three questions. 1. Are the films of Howard Hawks any good? 2. Does Hawks deserve the, not particularly pithy, epithet of the greatest American director who is not a household name, as bestowed on him by the film critic Leonard Maltin? And 3. Do black people exist in Howard Hawks' films? Actually, we can answer that one now. No, no, they do not. <laughs> not even in the background. Unless the film is set in the Caribbean, where presumably it was unavoidable. But those black people were French, so probably didn't count. <laughs> They're also still not all that prevalent. Uh, prevalent, even. Sorry. <laughs> Moving on from that, I believe there's general utility in exploring our existing familiarity with the subjects of our themed episodes. So, before we begin, I'm curious as to our previous experience with her talks. For me, a number of his films have been on my to-watch list for ages, but I'd only seen two previously, and those because, well, I'll watch anything with Cary Grant in it, and not because of the director. And as for you, Messrs Eastman and Morris? I'm not entirely convinced I've seen any Howard Hawks movies before. I have seen a couple, and there's a great more that I would like to see. I mean, we're covering six, and that's only covering bottom two half-ish of his ones that made it into the Library of Congress for being significant and all that jazz. So, yeah, he's he's certainly got a number you could pick from. Uh, of this, I think I have seen two, actually, uh, before, which I liked, and so I wanted to see more. And also, just in general, I want to see more of this period of Hollywood, which I somehow kind of haven't. So, yes, not, not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I, of course, tell a complete and utter lie because I have seen the thing from another world. Uh, and just as a brief scroll through his filmography, that would be about it. Yes, that's another one has been on my um, to-watch list. Again, though, not because of the director, but because of it being what was remade by John Carpenter into The Thing. So, yeah. But yes, uh, so broadly, as a group, pretty unfamiliar with his work then. It would have been fair yeah. to say before this episode. 
Okay, so I blank slate more or less, I guess, for a lot of this. Let's begin now with the, the film that I guess more than the other created this episode, which was Scott's mentioning in a discussion a few weeks ago of Scarface, although I believe it's Craig that's going to introduce us to this. Well, it certainly is. So the movie opens with the assassination of Chicago Southside Mafia boss Big Louis Costello by none other than his own bodyguard, Tony Camonte, in a hit sanctioned by rival Johnny Lovo. And joining Lovo as his ambitious right-hand man, Camonte soon earns a reputation with his boss for being a fearless go-getter who thinks nothing of going toe-to-toe with the other Chicago outfits as they wrestle for control of the city's bootleg liquor market during production. And you'll have to excuse me because I'm being totally thrown by the fact that as I go through my notes, Lovo has been auto-corrected to love. <laughs> Which is throwing me for quite a loop. Of course, Tony's ambition was always going to outpace that of his boss, and when he ignores the order not to poke the hornet's nest of the Northside outfit run by Irish mobster O'Hara, it becomes uh, increasingly clear, sorry, that the two men are not going to be able to coexist within the outfit. Camonte's actions become ever more abrasive, in particular his open courting of Lovo's girlfriend Poppy, and so the stage is set for the inevitable showdown. Naturally, the whole endeavour pivots upon Paul Mooney's performance as Camonte, a charismatic, down-to-earth, yet absolutely ruthless veneer of amorality wrapped around a deeply troubled core that wrestles, depending on how you want to read into it, either with repressed sexual proclivities towards his sister Cheska, Anne Vorschach, or his best friend and faithful sidekick Gino Ronaldo, George Raft. Camonte's ascent of the underworld is going quite spiffingly, thank you very much, until Cheska and Ronaldo become romantically entwined, at which point the red mist descends and the guano hits the turboprop. At this point, Camonte's flamboyant projection gives way to the frankly insane monster within, and while Mooney's performance may not be deemed particularly sophisticated by modern standards, it is nonetheless engaging and easy to appreciate as a landmark in the trajectory of how male power fantasies would occupy the medium for most of the century. Interestingly though, much of the rest of the movie's narrative is driven by Karen Morley's portrayal of Poppy, a surprisingly high-profile role that outshines the likes of Lovo and Ronaldo, in which cast a character as much more than just fawning gangsters mall. Uh, interestingly, you drew tying into what you were saying before that I had no concept of previously, which was the pre-existing notion of the Hoxian female. I was surprised at how open Poppy's manipulation of the two male leads is played, as I'd gone into Scarface somewhat naively expecting little but broad stereotypes. My real takeaway, though, was Anne Vorschach, with whom I think I would have been head over heels in love had she not passed away the year I was born. Uh, well, Cheska has way less screen time than I would have liked. Vorschach's screen magnetism and confident projection of her sexuality is just great, and I was in no doubt whatsoever of either her seduction of Ronaldo nor her status as the fulcrum upon which Tony's sanity ultimately rests. Vorschach herself seems to have been quite the renegade and perhaps a performer ahead of her time, <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> and if anyone, I don't know, did you guys, you guys haven't by any chance browsed the somewhat brief uh, Wikipedia entry for Anne Vorschach, have you? I did last no. week, but I admit I don't remember a lot of it other than that she wasn't particularly happy with the role she got after this. Yes, yeah. Um, so very much a star in the Ascendant at the time. Not not pleased with the fact that she discovered she was getting paid. Um, she, was, she was basically being groomed as a sort of marquee star and then found out that she was being paid similarly to the child actors that she was pairing against rather than the <laughs> the, the male leads that she was, she was um, starring alongside. So she basically she got she got married, took a year out of her contract without asking to go on an extended honeymoon. 
etc etc and i really i really want to read more about her because she seems sounds like a bit of a firecracker but uh, unfortunately also it seems that her uh, her career might have taken a hit as a result but there you go she wasn't taking it lying down uh, but i digress sorry i'm a little bit fascinated by Anne Vorschak now in case you hadn't guessed uh, one thing i wasn't necessarily prepared for was the humor of the piece a lot of which is channeled through vince barnett's portrayal of the seemingly gormless and ultimately tragic character of angelo tony's sex Secretary, who has a running gag around not being able to remember the names of telephone callers. In one prolonged sequence involving rival mobsters shooting up a restaurant, Angelo is desperately trying to, <laughs> trying to take the name of a caller as he is understandably distracted by bullet impacts ripping up the wall inches from his head. This is a sequence that can only fully be appreciated when one understands, as I read afterwards, that in the days before explosive squibs, these were actual bullet impacts from actual bullets being fired around the actor's head. <laughs> Only after reading this did I understand that Barnett's very apparent nervousness in the scene might not have been acting. And one wonders how many takes might have been involved. <laughs> how many pairs of trousers? Uh, yes, there's a point in that scene where I thought he looked like he was becoming incredibly emotional as he was trying to take the <laughs> take the name on the phone. <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's actually he's ruining this by uh, over-egging it a little bit. But then... <laughs> Then I read about this afterwards and I thought, well, if someone was shooting a machine gun at my head for most of the day, <laughs> I might I might verge on the nervous breakdown myself. Um, visually, I was again unprepared for quite how sophisticated Scarface proved to be, though in hindsight, I once again surprised myself with my own ignorance. Motion pictures may still have been in their relative infancy. However, photography was not, and it stands to reason that inventiveness in one application may follow the other. The movie's mise-en-scene is much more compelling than I'd expected, with some very atmospheric camera work and set design, especially in the first half of the film. And while the technical limitations of the time are apparent, there is still a good deal of visual inventiveness even by today's standards. In particular, I love the calendar accompanied by Tommy Gun moving on mm. time. But that's not to rule out an audacious opening single take that chronicles the hit on Big Louie, beginning outside on a street lamp, moving indoors to a restaurant table conversation, before ending some minutes later on a whistling Camonte doing the deed in silhouette. Quite spectacularly well staged and and com- caught me completely off guard. Remarkably, Scarface was Hawk's 10th official directorial outing in six years, 11th if one counts 1930s The Criminal Code, and despite some unavoidable artefacts of anachronistic hindsight, it remains a startlingly inventive, propulsive narrative experience, a stark reminder that the groundwork for Hollywood's golden age was laid some 30 to 40 years prior in the inventive approach of the medium's earlier, often insanely prolific pioneers. If I have a particular bone to pick, it's knowing that Hawks openly courted audience with the likes of Al Capone, while at the same time opening the film on a title card that claims the movie, quote, an indictment of gang rule in America and of the callous indifference of the government, unquote, before going on to demand of the audience, the government is your government, what are you going to do about it? Uh, I'm not sure the movie or its director do enough to distance themselves from accusations of glamorising the antagonists of the piece, in which context this seems like a cynical ploy to shift the perception of moral ambiguity onto the audience. Then again, if Al Capone has designs on vetting your take on his persona, then maybe a title card proclaiming, this is all a bit naughty, is actually a bold move. Anywho, that's a rabbit hole I'm not going down today, and suffice to say, I enjoyed Scarface a great deal. Uh, Likewise, I... I actually don't have anything much more to add and what you said there it's pretty much encapsulated all the reasons why I liked it uh, I went through a rab- down a rabbit hole some years back of the kind of pre-code mm. uh, gangster movie codes which I, uh, films which I find a lot of fun admittedly that was kind of more Jimmy Cagney uh, weighted uh, than this I'd, I'd forgotten a lot of uh, Scarface by this point but you know it, it still holds up remarkably well mm. 
for a film of this era and it's yeah it's quite a lot of fun and, and narratively it's, it's definitely suckers you in as you say not the most sophisticated central performance but it gets the job done and certainly happy enough to uh, pulls you through for the uh, time you have with it and yeah it feels remarkably modern for a film as old uh, yeah it still works pretty well no complaints with it at all i guess i'm the outlier here then <laughs> i thought scarface was garbage <laughs> oh no oh my time with this was not fun not at all it certainly it, it set me off in the wrong fruit uh, the wrong fruit <laughs> the wrong fruit and the wrong foot um <laughs> at the beginning with that title card that you were mentioned, Craig, yeah. about like about idolizing criminals and stuff, and like, and, and I've always been bothered by like the idolizing of criminals, people like John Dillinger and Ned Kelly and things like that, and Al Capone himself. But I don't know, j- just the way that was portrayed, and knowing the connection with Al Capone to it, mm-hmm. like, get bent hawks. I'm like, just kind of really irritated. So that was not a good start, and then I was offended. For the entire film by the accents because they're appalling. <laughs> they're so bad. Um, hey, like what that. are you talking about, eh? Oh, yeah, that, that the guy, the original gang boss that gets killed, is like, what are you doing with that accent? And then <laughs> Paul Mooney, you know, the, the Hungarian um, who was raised in New York City, the Hungarian Jew who was raised as in the Yiddish New York City, like, and you're supposed to be an Italian immigrant, are you? Like, the 50% of the time you're remembering to do an accent, and it's a terrible one, so no. And it's, I just thought Paul Mooney was awful. Uh, and uh, I'm not buying Osgood Perkins as a gangster, let alone a Don. So his, the whole film just wasn't working for me then. Having been set off on the wrong foot with the the title card, there's a, this film stops about half to two-thirds of the way through to have a sermonising scene in the the office of, is it the mayor? Something like that, kind of political official anyway, yeah. with some kind of members of the, the upstanding local community and stuff to sermonise about all the things that are happening in town. Like, it's, it's it was so awkward and so oh, just bad. Uh, and then uh, it's so strange that when we're so often aligned with these things you talk about the humor i have the word humor written in my notes but there were lots of inverted commas around it <laughs> go on um because that guy apparently stan laurel secretary who's a simpleton um and it just doesn't you've got right, there are people being murdered and he's still trying to take a phone call and it's like i'm just swearing at the screen at that point i didn't find that funny i just found it offensively stupid so yeah um I thought Scarface was terrible. I, I much prefer the Brian De Palma remake um, because like, while Al Pacino may be doing his best to eat every bit of scenery in sight, he's at least got the character and he's really entertaining. Pullman is terrible. This film is crap. Um, I do not like it and I'm really disappointed because I was really, really looking forward to seeing this. Oh, we can never be friends again. Um, yeah, the, the title <laughs> card thing really got my back up as well and that the sort of preaching scene there was also at the start there was a really bizarre fixation on the newspaper editor who was uh, it's almost sort of like points a finger at the press as well um, by portraying this newspaper editor who's adamant that basically he's going to create gang war by insisting that the headline includes <laughs> includes the words gang war and there seemed to be a great deal made of that and i think i feel like that was hox's attempt at passing at least some of the blame for the situation onto onto the press, um, which again feels feels a little bit maybe out of line. But um, I was willing I, also, I was willing to forgive it. It's it's, uh, it's occasional 
missteps uh, purely on the basis of of how entertaining I found it. I was I, I was quite startled, and my wife was quite startled by like the the constant sort of uh, rattle of machine gun fire in this film as well. It's not it's not afraid to whip out the old Tommy guns every five minutes um, to a degree that I wasn't expecting. And although you know there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of brutal explicit violence on screen, there's not a great deal of bloodshed. There is like a, a reasonable body count, uh, certainly more than I was expecting for a film of this period. Uh, Priest Hayes Code stuff is like uh, has a lot of stuff that you, I think because you associate um, so much of like that you hold with the Hayes Code stuff and mm. stuff so restricted. Like there's actually a, before that came in, there's a lot of stuff where people actually you know there is violence and there's much more. Yeah actually acknowledgement of the things that humans do and saying things yeah. um, that's what i think that's what caught me off guard is because i've never seen a film from the pre Hayes code period before this is this is the first um this is the first one so it, it kind of caught me for a loop um i'm sure somewhere i read as well that there's um the f-bomb gets dropped a couple of times albeit in the background or something and i didn't pick up on that at all while watching the film but that that also was a surprise if, if true i don't remember that but um no, it's just going Back to that title cartoon you're talking about, um, seems like Cox's um, author insertion with the newspapers and stuff. Mm. There's, I, I'm familiar with the idea of the 1920s, 1930s, prohibition era gangsters and like how corrupt and things police forces were. And we've all seen so many films about it, everything from like this to The Untouchables, um, Boardwalk Empire, uh, Public Enemies. There's lots of stuff that say that. And I, I was like, wonder, just like, how much that was because particularly given that this is a film set at that time it really felt like a moral panic film mm. which really irritated me it's like was the daily mail sponsoring this i had that kind of feel about it mm. that kind of preaches and that really bothered me yes i'm pro-organized crime myself one of the the <laughs> few things about it i did like was the calendar the like that trope of like showing a calendar flying by to show time pass but to do it with a machine gun a tommy gun i, I did like that i liked that mm. touch but honestly that was about it for me in terms of liking this film in any way i sorry didn't care much for the creepy um incest subplot well um suggested subplot there <laughs> but you're all right with it in uh, brian de palma's remake drew <laughs> <laughs> double standards if ever i heard them i mean we've said it before but we'll, we'll say it again at times like this when we disagree on a film we can never be friends again i wonder how many times you've said that to me on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> take the hint <laughs> <laughs> oh dear well there you go Two, two to one on uh, Scarface. Uh, what's next? Will it fare any better? Um, it certainly won't get a total of three votes because I've not seen the next film that you guys are going to discuss. His Girl Friday? That's yes. you, right? I hope. It is, yes. My mum is a big Cary Grant fan, so I was watching films starring Cary Grant from a very young age. And it's because of that that this is one of the only films we selected for this episode that I'd seen before. My only other Howard Talks experience having been 1938's Bringing Up Baby, which stars both Cary Grant and a leopard, so is clearly the boss. <laughs> While Grant is a vital part of this film, though, he's not actually the protagonist of this adaptation of Ben Heck's play The Front Page. Rather, that's Rosalind Russell's Hildy Johnson, a crack newspaper reporter who's about to give up her career, settle down and have babies with Ralph Bellamy's Bruce Baldwin, an Albany insurance salesman. To this end, Hildy goes to the offices of the Morning Post, a leading newspaper in a fictional unnamed city in New York State, to tell the editor she won't be returning. The wrinkle here is that the editor is her ex-husband, Walter Burns. 
Burns, played with relish by Grant, might charitably be described as a self-centred, scheming, duplicitous, unscrupulous bastard. And he'd probably thank you for it. Being both a bounder and a cad, who isn't about to let his best reporter or his wife just walk away. And certainly not a cultural backwater like Albany. Despite the film's title, though, Hildy is neither subservient nor servile, and certainly not stupid, and she can see through most of Walter's attempts to sabotage her plans or tempt her to return. Judo of the mind it is, then, as Burns uses Hildy's own strengths and weaknesses against her, especially her reporter's instincts and curiosity. To this end, Burns asks her to do a last favour for the paper and cover an upcoming execution as his best man is unavailable. Naturally, he gave said man an unexpected two-week holiday to ensure this unavailability. Hildy can't help but be sucked in, and minor issues like Walter having Bruce framed for passing counterfeit notes, or a henchman bodily removing her soon-to-be mother-in-law from the press room, are entirely insufficient to distract her from a tale of political intrigue, corruption, last-minute execution reprieves, and police incompetence. His Girl Friday is simply an enormous amount of fun. With both Grant and Russell in exceptional form, screenwriter Charles Leder a sizzling dialogue flying back and forth between them like the ball in an Olympic-level table tennis match, the scenes absolutely crackling with energy. Even the fourth wall-breaking moments, like Burns describing Bruce, played by Ralph Bellamy, as looking like that fell in the movies. You know, Ralph Bellamy. Or warning the sheriff of the horrible fate suffered by the last person who crossed him, one Archie Leach. Both of these were ad-libs by Grant, add to the enjoyment rather than detracting from it. The dialogue, also contributed by an uncredited hect, is the key to the film. The situations are absurd and farcical, but you're unlikely to care because you'll instead be enjoying scenes like the one where the members of the press court the court have a conversation in newspaper headlines and subheadings. Like Scarface, His Girl Friday begins with text telling us what issues the film's going to be about. To wit, unscrupulous reporters who would do the sort of thing seen later, like plead for an execution to be moved to an earlier time just so they can make the morning editions. Not at all like the fine, upstanding journalists we have today. <laughs> but unlike Scarface, which was a miserable experience, so entertaining is His Girl Friday that almost nothing the film does hits a wrong note for me. Almost. A veiled reference to the consequences attached to the ethnicity of the police officer whose death is at the heart of the intended execution could be simply a political comment, but some scumbag walking into the press room later in the film and starting to talk loudly on the phone about picking an East threatened to sour the whole thing for me. That, fortunately, is fleeting, but it does leave a bad taste. However, if you have any love at all for Cary Grant, then you need to watch this, as here he is entirely Cary Grant, and for once has the foil he richly deserves. Brilliant fun. I guess, Craig, we need to get you to watch this because we need another tiebreaker because I didn't like this at all. Um, <laughs> oh, well, well it'll, to hap- be fair, it'll happen because I'm big on yeah. Cary Grant myself and I, I will yeah. I will fast track this into my schedule over the next week. Uh, to be fair, I didn't hate it, but I, mean, I read somewhere that the, the scriptwriters and Hawks were trying to break the record for the amount of dialogue said per minute, you know, <laughs> the highest word per minute count of it. And I think in a lot of ways it's mistaken quickness in terms of velocity for quickness in terms of sharpness of wit. Um, a lot of it just didn't really land for me. I didn't think a lot of the jokes were particularly funny. And at the end of the day, this is a screwball comedy set against the background of a mentally ill person being illegally executed. 
Ha ha! Um, so, so I found I found it a little bit hard to get into the spirit of it. To be honest with you, um, I guess if you can if you can get away with a lot of that and um, the sheer manipulativeness of on display from pretty much all the characters, then you, and appreciate it for what it is, then you might get a bit more joy out of it. But no, to be honest, it, it kind of bounced off me. Um, I, I don't find myself getting particularly annoyed by it or anything like that. It's just a, a film that I watched and went, yeah, that, that's not for me. And I didn't really get a great deal of enjoyment out of it at all. So yeah, no thank you. Um, <laughs> the, the central performances are you know, quite charismatic. I think it does have that going for it. I think it looks pretty good. It moves very quickly as obviously evidenced by the dialogue i can imagine there's a lot of people who get a lot of joy out of this but yeah i am not one of those people so tell me well this might be shaping up to be quite an interesting episode all in you took the words out of my mouth yes yes um well let's see if this continues when i don't know how people in 1917 tennessee actually spoke what I do know is that I don't I be a caring a for other way other <laughs> characters I be a speaking. But maybe you did. You were Scott. Yes, we're talking about Sergeant York, where uh, Gary Cooper plays said Sergeant Alvin York in this 1941 biographical outing. York was a dirt poor farmer hailing from a, a village in rural, rural Tennessee that's just to the south of the middle of nowhere, struggling to ride for his family on the poor farmland, hoping one day to earn enough to buy some rather less stone-based farmland. He's a rambunctious soul, if by rambunctious you mean violent alcoholic, but a sudden conversion to religion sees him stow away his jackass tendencies and become an upright citizen, steered by Walter Brennan's Pastor Rosier Pyle. However, Pastor Pyle's radical interpretation of Christianity, that being, maybe we shouldn't kill each other, will cause a problem when the US of A starts conscription for the army for World War I. York attempts to register as a conscientious objector, but is countered by arguments that killing for your country is a good and righteous thing, actually, and something you should all be ready to do, particularly any men in the audience of this initial release. During the war, York is the main part of a heroic action that beggars belief, but nonetheless appears to actually be true, overrunning a machine gun that has his platoon pinned near single-handedly and capturing around 130 enemies. Hailed and decorated as a hero, he does not want to personally profit from his actions and instead devotes the rest of his life to improving the lot of his native rural Tennessee. Now, I did not know a great deal, by which I mean anything, about either Sergeant Jock, the film, or the person, so this more than held my attention throughout. Uh, for a contemporary reference, think Hacksaw Ridge, except told in an era where fragmentation grenades make people go oof and fall to their knees, rather than Ridge's method of making people fall to their knees by reducing their shins to splinters. Cooper plays everything stoically enough, although on a personal level, York's character gets less interesting as the film goes on. He's certainly more interesting as a young thug than as a military man, but there's a medium amount of shrift given to the discussion about conscientious objector status that brings up some interesting points. I'm not convinced it answers any of them, but at least it's a far more considered look at them than I'd expect from Hollywood given the timing of the film. Uh, now, this was well regarded at the time, although it's not the best film in, S- in any aspect from 1941 by a long chalk, given the likes of The Maltese Falcon or Suspicion or some little indie flick called Citizen Kane, but at the very least I'm not outraged by putting it in the same sentence as those other films. It's a solid story, solidly told, so a solid recommendation from the So Solid crew. Uh, yes, I take on board your point about accents. Not a strong point of this film, or indeed films generally of this era. Um, but yes, other than that, I found this reasonably captivating to, to watch. It doesn't get any better either with the accents when we meet the British soldiers and their English accents, which were convincing. 
Yes. <laughs> um, although I think uh, in terms of accents, it's probably Joan Leslie that comes out worst here because she's just awful and just so stilted. And I, and I don't know if... Yeah. I couldn't decide whether she was stilted because she was trying to do this weird accent that they put an A in front of every second word um, <laughs> and go, am I thinking, am I going to... It's driving me crazy, yeah. but she was so stilted. Again. I don't know if it was because she just couldn't act or whether like that really weird speech was yeah. make it difficult for her to act. Um, yeah. But let me just confirm something here. You think this film had an agenda? In 1941, <laughs> hmm, what the... The curious things about this film, uh, and you used the the uh, appropriate for the character, but it's not appropriate for the actor word a couple of times, which is talking about Sergeant Chork as a young man. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> I, I'm not sure how old York was. Um, Older than you might expect at the start of this film, he's he should be about 25, I think, off the top of my head. Um, which I was expecting, given his actions, to be more like, you know, 17 or 18. But no, he was relatively old, but not as old as Gary Cooper at that point. It's very hard to tell because Gary Cooper was 40 when he shot this. And I'd like you to direct you back, um, not for the first time and not for the last time in this episode, to for the first time around, not the last time, to my comments and introduction about the city miles on people in the early 20th century. Um, (laughs) Gary Cooper's 40 looks like he could be 60 um, by modern standards um, and he's playing this person who's acting like a rowdy teenager yeah Yeah, I unfortunately didn't enjoy this film more than anything apart from the the accents well the way of speaking was really uh, getting on my nerves but I was just bored by it I certainly take your point Scott that he's a lot more interesting in the early going hmm but it's just, I don't know, I just I didn't find it very interesting. And it's weird too, it's a, and I, I knew about Sergeant York as having been this great military hero, but I never really knew why. I was just, I'd been vaguely aware of the name for a long time. So I was going you know, had some interest in finding out what it was all about. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, can we get to it? It was like, one hour, 37 minutes before he gets to France. One yeah. hour, 37 before he actually goes to war. <laughs> okay. And then his actions while heroic, uh, have more or less sawed all to do really with his incredible sharpshooting, which was played up so much in the rest of the film. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but that kind of didn't matter what happened at the end. Um, which seems a strange emphasis to put on it. Uh, yeah, I think it definitely spends a bit too long with the the start of his character, where it's actually not that interesting for the first, what, 45 minutes. I think there's a really interesting sort of sub-discussion about conscious objective status, um, particularly in, you know, regards conscription. Uh, yeah. It, it gives that valid. But basically, if you, if you cut out almost all of the first act of this film, it'd be a lot tighter and a lot, um, a lot more enjoyable, I think, for 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 audiences. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it is not the the, the most um, swiftly paced of the films we'll talk no. about today by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, there, there's some interesting character beats earlier on. Like he's gonna, he's like you know, he's a bit of a rowdy guy, um, and he kind of straightens up and flies right, but. I think the problem is, while I actually enjoyed Gary Cooper's performance a lot more here than in Pride of the Yankees, if you remember, yeah. we covered that a few years ago, Scott, I really didn't yes. care for him in that. I thought he was very wooden. I, thought he was I a was lot thinking more, of that, yeah. I thought he was a lot more natural in this. Yeah. He's got a bit of that kind of 
and he was cast in similar roles too. He's got that, a bit of that James Stewart kind of G Shucks persona to him a wee yeah. bit, which means it's very difficult to buy him as being the Hellraiser. Yeah. Uh, so, get it? So it works for the second half of the character and doesn't work for the first half. <laughs> and then you've got like there's little bits too. Like he, he suddenly finds religion and he gets swindled by this old get of a. Um, land salesman um, and then decides that it's Providence and I'm swearing at the screen at this point like get bent Providence (laughs) Uh, so yeah I mean it's not bad Uh, although it really does drag a bit just I was a bit bored by it Um, and I didn't think Gargur was particularly well cast and not that he was bad uh, for that character I didn't think it worked and also you know he's like 50 years too old for it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um, I was perhaps going to mention like any time religion appears in any film, it immediately puts my back up because it's religion in a film and I'm so mm, avowedly, yeah. I'm so <laughs> devoutly atheist. Um, but this was perhaps the one time where I saw a discussion of religion go on and I thought, you know what, that's actually an interesting take and not offensive. And I yeah. quite agree with that. I mean, it's something, you know, say what you will about religion as a means of control, but the, the way that it takes someone who's um, clearly on a, you know, a dangerous, alcoholic, violent path and uses that religion, straightens them up, makes them a better person. It's like, uh, that's actually one of the more interesting aspects you could talk about. Um, Providence, that bit aside, yeah, can, uh, that's the stupid part of religion, hearing, yeah. reading its ugly head. But between uh, that and the bit about conscientious, conscientious observer uh, status, it's one of the more interesting discussions of religion I've seen in a film. It's one yeah. of the least offensive bits. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I liked it on that basis, so I perhaps was giving it a bit more credit than it perhaps deserves on that basis, but yeah, it did appeal to me on that level. Yeah, I don't think the film deals with it particularly well, particularly because it's kind of, it's undercut by this presumably meant to be patriotic speech by the major at one point explaining American history and stuff like American <laughs> yeah, history so is not something good. you want to base any moral standing on at yeah, all. Exactly. Not, not good. Um, also, but, it says here you can own black people. <laughs> <laughs> not that you see any. They're not in the yeah. film. <laughs> If they were around, you could own them, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I I have exactly the same problem. The religion comes up at all and I'm immediately just, like, angry. Um, I'm not an atheist because that's like calling myself an atheist or an a-dragonist. Um, <laughs> I frequently call myself both of those things. I'll have you know. But, uh, but yes, I actually thought that, that the idea at the beginning and um, Walter Brennan's pastor was reasonably sensibly held so like, like I think Tennessee's in the Bible Bell and you think it would be kind of real kind of yeah. Southern Baptist thing or kind of Bible something and it's not actually it's gentler than that and it's more about a basic philosophy and stuff and while when people are referring to the, the Bible as any sort of source of truth it immediately mm. makes me angry but uh, yeah as you said Scott it's like that's actually fairly sensitively held and handled mm. Um, mm. I just think the second half of the film throws it away entirely because of that speech by the major and then it's like well at least with Hacksaw Ridge um, Andrew Garfield's character whatever his name was I forget he, he's not carrying a gun it's like I totally guess it but I'll try and save people's lives and I kind of saw where they were going with, with York saying that by you know shooting people he was in a way saving lives but yeah mm. I, I don't think that's quite the same as you know tending to the injured, you know, just like, you you are killing people. And especially, it's one of those things, and you see it a lot, it's about uh, how can anybody um, be um, in trouble if the Lord's on their side and stuff like that. Do you not think the people on the other side believe that too? I think it's always (laughs) bothered me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, So, yeah, it's... um, 
it's not, it kind of brings up like, interesting, quite sensitively uh, handled, as you say, uh, and it's like, you know, conscious objection, I think, and it's wrong. It's, it rings a wee bit hollow given how suddenly he found religion. And for all that the film drags, that bit kind of happens almost instantly. Yes. <laughs> and then suddenly he's this, um, this really staunch Christian. So it's, that's the pacing's a bit wrong there. But it, it throws it away in the second half, and it's like, that's quite frustrating because. Yeah, that would actually be interesting. Like, I would like to see his struggles with that much more, and it feels like the film's going to go there because his drill instructor and um, somebody else above him in command is like the kind of the same, like basically like this horrible, dirty, probably commie um, with his pacifism and stuff. Uh, and then within about a minute they've realised they can shoot really well they're like oh right then we don't care about that anymore (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah that's more of a frustration than anything else Uh, unfortunately for the rest of the film to be honest I was quite bored by it Uh, it wasn't bad but it's just Hmm. I don't know there are too many individual problems for me to recommend that film the casting's wrong and the age and stuff but uh, Mm -hmm. it's not bad it's just also not good. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Like I say, I, I can't say much more than it's solid. So make of that what you will. Yeah. Shall we move on then to Have and Have Not? Yes, it's still in the war there, but um, a different one this time. Yes. Taken from a different perspective. And how? Legend has it that 1944's To Have and Have Not is the result of a bet between Howard Hawks and Ernest Hemingway, in which the former wagered he could make a great movie adaptation of even the least of the latter's literary output. <laughs> it is a bet Hawks is generally agreed to have won, though I'd be interested to see whether any legitimate bookmaker would offer odds on such an endeavour, where adaptation means changing the time, country, conflict, themes, and majority of key character traits and definitions beyond much recognition. <laughs> In Hawks's take, Humphrey Bogart plays Harry Morgan, a charter fishing boat captain operating tours out of the French Caribbean island of Martinique during the early stages of World War II, right about the time France became occupied by, slash, rolled over for, delete as applicable, the Nazis. As the Vichy bureaucrats administering the island and its police force tighten their grip on local dissenters, including hotel owner Gerard, a.k.a. Frenchy, played here by Marcel Dalio, Interesting and original name, huh? It is. They they thought long and hard about how to name that guy. Uh, Morgan is approached by the Free French Resistance with a job offer that involves smuggling two French fugitives back to Martinique from a small neighbouring island. Keen to avoid being caught in a conflict that was, at this point, anyone's problem but America's, Morgan is initially disinterested. However, the arrival of Marie Browning, Lauren Bacall, a globetrotting American national who has landed penniless in Martinique, soon changes the game. Morgan predictably develops feelings for the sultry, charismatic Marie who matches him for smarts and wit at every turn and wants to assist her safe passage off the island out of harm's way. When the captain's shifty last charter is killed by a stray bullet from a firefight between the resistance and the local police before he can sign off his traveller's checks, it seems to becomes clear to Morgan that the only way to clear his bills and buy Marie a flight is to take the resistance job after all. Naturally, not everything goes according to plan, but that's largely by the by, as the wartime plotting of subterfuge and shenanigans are not the primary weapon into Have and Have Not's arsenal. That accolade undoubtedly belongs to the chemistry between its two leads, this being Bacall's movie debut and the first of four riotously popular movies she would make with soon-to-be husband Bogart, and it's not hard to see why the pair became one of Hollywood's most successful couples. Unsettling singing voice aside, Bacall's screen debut is fairly electric, betraying nothing of the supposed anxiousness 
artists she brought to the set, and some of the banter she brings to bear not just upon Bogart but also the assembled supporting players remains best described as top level. You do know how to whistle, don't you listeners? Speaking of support, B&B have quite the backup here. From Walter Brennan as drunken boating sidekick Eddie, bizarrely obsessed with a line of questioning that involves dead bees, to Dan Seymour as Captain Renard, whose accent work seems to be predicated entirely upon chewing a mouthful of them. Somewhere in the middle, Hoagie Carmichael shows up to chew matchsticks and shoehorn some of his popular output on the old Joanna, and I have to wonder just how much more you could probably ask for. The visual flair and storytelling of Scarface is very much absent here, with Hawks' intent as director somewhat wisely focused upon keeping the cameras rolling to capture the chemistry of his leads as he set fire to several thousand feet of celluloid. In a very measured way, Hawks and his cast avoid the temptation to pour too much fuel on that fire, with much of the underlying romance implicit rather than explicit, thus swerving the kind of melodrama that might bog down a less efficient narrative. As it is, that economy of passion feels far more genuine and the movie all the more engaging for it. Ultimately, to have and have not has very little to say about anything, eschewing entirely the source material's dissection of the wealth divide in Cuba in order to focus on the interplay between its two stars. One already firmly established, the other cementing themselves a first-class ticket into Hollywood history. In that sense, it represents one end of the spectrum that describes the best of cinema as a medium, that sometimes it really is enough just to want to tell a good yarn and to trust in the people helping you do it. Yes, I really enjoyed this. I am not familiar with the source material, so I, I didn't have that to potentially <laughs> ruin things for me. If I, I didn't really, realise quite how different it was from the source material. That's very much stretching the definition of adaptation, isn't um, it? Okay, I'm, right. I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> there the are more. Us? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there are more egregious examples one could find. But to think that to think that this whole endeavour was predicated on a bet that kind of depends on the source material, <laughs> as a, I do find it a bit of a stretch. Fortunately, I didn't have that lurking in the background. I just said could sit down and enjoy a good yarn. As you mm-hmm. say, it's this is one of those films. that was another one's on my to watch list, and it has that that very famous line about the whistling too. So I can uh, always been in my consciousness this mm-hmm. film. I'd never just not gone away to see it. And I, I've watched it and now I'm really glad to have because it's just it's a lot of fun and watching Bogart and Bacall together, with the exception of when they've decided to have Lauren Bacall for not for the first time in this episode singing mm. for reasons. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why I did that, but just watch them together on screen screen and and I just really like Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. They make it really easy to watch, don't they? Yeah. That, that's it. It's easy to watch. Uh, kind of the the actual plot of it almost doesn't matter mm. because I was just enjoying watching it. I uh, kind of not caring about what happened. Well, there were there were points where I kind of had to double check my understanding of what was happening. Not because it's particularly complex, but because the movie itself doesn't necessarily feel as interested in that and as it does in the in its two leads, which is probably the right decision. I think so. I mean, if I had an issue with the film, it's Eddie, because I was kind of like some more explanation of Eddie. There's a wee bit like kind of like he's been somebody that knew um, Morgan from far back and stuff. But also, why is Harry Morgan called Steve? I would also like an explanation. Of, Damn it! Now I have more questions. But, and the, the thing about the bee that amused the hell out of me. But 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 why why the bee? Yeah, I knew I had I I knew I had heard that line before, and bizarrely, it was a friend of mine at primary school that used to recite it, and I had, <laughs> and honestly, it suddenly the penny dropped watching this. I like practically leapt out of my seat, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's now I get it!" But then also, I'm left with this. 
earth-shattering revelation that a pal of mine when I was about 10 years old, who was, I, I say pal, I mean, they were a bit of a knobhead, but somehow <laughs> by the age of 10 had had a cinematic education far outweighing my own. <laughs> to, have been able to, yeah, to have been able to pull out a reference about being bit by a dead bee. Um, but yeah, just like bizarre, bizarre. I really like the character of Eddie, but like you, Drew, I kind of want to know a bit more about him. I want a bit more context around him. Yeah, and also now I want to know if he's related to Richard Woodmark. <laughs> Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, yeah, for my part, I, I enjoyed this well enough. I, I couldn't. There was something annoying me all the way throughout it, and I couldn't quite work out what it was until I kind of realised that oh, this is the beta version of Casablanca, and it, it's got a lot of the, the same same themes and character beats throughout it. And yeah. you, you could argue maybe Casablanca did it a bit better, but I think it's better. But Dave um, yeah. doing it pretty well. Yeah. Um, it was criticised for being a kind of remake, wasn't it? Even though they claimed otherwise, but it's, it's so similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, and um, but uh, this, this holds up pretty well. Just again, I'm really just be echoing everything you say, but you can't really go wrong with the the Bacall Bogart double act as a, <laughs> a central feature. Just just put them on screen, just point the camera at them, and let, let everything else fall at the sides, and it will still work out fairly well. And uh, lo and behold, that's pretty much what's happened here. Uh, yeah, it is a, a very enjoyable, very easy watch, and uh, yeah, nothing I have any major complaints with. Uh, yes, well worth catching up with. Mm, very enjoyable. Shall we move on then to the big sleep? Let's say Sunday create a linking device about more Bogart and Bacall or something, rather than one of our normal tenuous links. Or, or is that all I'm getting? That's all you're getting. I'm very, I'm very tired. I might go for a sleep, but I hope it's not the big sleep. <laughs> After that link, I hope it is. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're already not friends, right? So I hope. Doesn't matter. I hope. <laughs> I hope you get bit by a dead bee, Drew. <laughs> I'll just have to get a stinger and bite it back, Craig. That's it. Based on Raymond Chandler's novel of the same name, The Big Sleep stars Humphrey Bogart as Los Angeles private detective Philip Marlowe, who's hired by an elderly man, General Sherwood, Charles Waldron, to deal with his daughter Carmen's, Martha Vickers, gambling debts, and whatever those may in truth be, as there's a strong hint of blackmail in the air. Marlowe, who introduces himself as being 38 because of which I actually snort laughed. Um, <laughs> Bogart was about 10 years older than that at the time of filming and looked at least another decade on top. Like I said in my introduction earlier, those are some real city miles on bogey. But I, I digress, not for the first time, I'm sure. Uh, soon, soon finds that there's much more going on with his family than it first appears, including the other daughter, Vivian, Lauren Bacall, and her ties to the gangster Eddie Mars and the mysterious disappearance of the General's former employee, Sean Vegan. There's also the murder of the General's chauffeur, and the murder of the pornographer, Arthur Geiger, and the murder of... Well, there are a good few murders, and I'm sure I'll shock you by telling you that they're all somehow connected. So, Marlowe must traipse around Los Angeles and the surrounding area, gathering facts, making connections avoiding one wayward Sherwood's daughter while beginning a relationship with the other, and trying not to get killed many, many times. A noir detective's lot is a hard one, to be sure. As is the lot of any film reviewer trying to tell you anything further about the plot of The Big Sleep, because, eh? Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to try. <laughs> one of the reasons I was looking forward to uh, so much to watching The Big Sleep, though, after I realised I hadn't, as I thought, seen it and was in fact thinking of the Maltese Falcon, where Humphrey Bogart <laughs> plays Dasho Hammett's private detective and not Raymond Chandler's, was that his unnoted influence on the Big Lebowski, 
previously noted on this podcast, is my favourite film. General Sherwood, confined to his wheelchair and with the wayward daughter whose lifestyle he disapproves of, certainly brings to mind the Big Lebowski. He may even have the same blanket, but Marlowe bears no resemblance to the dude. Most most particularly, he's actually competent. <laughs> oh, though, on a tangent arising from a nagging but fairly idle thought while I wrote this, and of no importance, especially to this review, do you think The Big Lebowski is like a film equivalent of The Legend of Zelda, where a substantial number of people think that the dude is The Big Lebowski, as many people think Link is called Zelda? Now, I'm not saying that these are the thoughts that keep me up at night or anything, <laughs> though they are the types of thoughts I tend to have while I'm up at night anyway. But um, again, I digress. <laughs> Those are really the only overt similarities, though, and that's probably just as well as it was able to soon stop being distracted by looking for their influences and started just enjoying the film instead. Big Sleep's plot is convoluted and is considered by many to be confusing at points. And while I wasn't confused, it's hard to deny that as a valid criticism, as more than once Marlowe seems to be suddenly operating with new information or deductions that there was no hint of before. Much of that is likely due to the film's production history. It was shot in 1944, but its release put on hold until after the end of World War II, and by its release in 1946, it had been recut and new scenes shot in order to play up the bogey and Bacall romance, due particularly to audience fascination with its real-life counterpart. And for the most part, I'm okay with that, as I really enjoy the chemistry between them. Though it's the character of Carmen that's actually the most sexual and provocative. Apparently much of Martha Vickers' performance was cut so as to not overshadow Bacall. Even without that chemistry though, I think I'd enjoy this as Bogart is just a fascinating actor to watch and few could deliver a smart arse line like he could. And Chandler's book, adapted by William Faulkner, Lee Brackett and Jules Furthman, gives him plenty of opportunity to do that. It's the dialogue and... Bogart's delivery of it that provides most of the impetus for the big sleep and that papers over a lot of cracks in the erratic narrative and I absolutely buy Bogart's basic honesty, ability and later in Upi's guilt making his interpretation of Marlowe a joy to watch. It's only in the very last scene that the lacking story really becomes an issue for me leaving me emitting a loud hmm in response to the film's lacklustre conclusion. Still, I heartily recommend The Big Sleep, making this the last of the exactly 50% of these films I have any time for. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. Chandler, Bogart, Noir. All these are very much core to my interest, so yes, I I like The Big Sleep an awful lot. It's a a very enjoyable film. I I can't imagine what sort of monster you would have to be to not enjoy The Big Sleep. It's just really entertaining. It, it sounds stupid. I mean, if you have any appreciation for film noir at all, then of course you've seen this already. But if you haven't, watch it because it's really good I um, do appreciate film noir and somehow I had managed to not see it so, so. <laughs> so I suppose that's why we're here yes yeah, so everyone watch The Big Sleep it's good um, I don't know if I've got a lot more to say about it <laughs> I think I covered most of the beats there but yeah I just really like it I think it's a really good film I enjoy the hell out of it and have done for a long time it's, it's good watch it <laughs> I've got a fast track this next week as well because uh, uh, my experience of Chandler uh, on film up until this point has been Robert Altman's uh, The Long Goodbye uh, which I absolutely adore and I've got no good excuse for not having seen The Big Sleep up until this point so given given it's a, a hot topic uh, I will uh, I will endeavour to do that but that's of no use to you right now listeners is it so uh, I have seen the next yeah. film we'll talk about though so I can say something about that yeah. I do feel I should talk more about The Big Sleep just to, 
just to reinforce the point, but uh, I, I don't think it was, hmm. would really be adding anything to the discussion. I think Drew did a pretty good job of fitting all the main points it's, uh, of why it is so good. And yes, the plot is almost necessarily convoluted to the point that it's, um, it is, a, I think it is a bit difficult to follow. Genuinely, it is a bit too twisty, but it almost doesn't matter. I've, I've read somewhere that it's, it's more concerned with the uh, the kind of investigative process than it is about the actual results or the actions of it. Um, it it's just, which I think is a fancy way of saying, it's just about watching Bogart go about his business, which frankly, you could do with almost any aspect of his life. He's, he's just a fascinating guy to watch uh, on film, and that's what makes this really enjoyable. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, so that that is his main selling point, and it's probably the only reason you need to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I Really, I could I could watch something Bogart and put which hands out. Um, I was like watching this, and I'm thinking, I love Humphrey Bogart. I've not watched anything like enough because everything I've seen him and I thought he's brilliant. Mm. So I need to <laughs> to add some more stuff. But well, uh, Drew, until to have and have not, I had never seen a Humphrey Bogart film. Never seen Casablanca. No, nope. the African Queen. No, no, nope. wow. huge glaring uh, hole in my fix knowledge. That. So fix yeah. that soon. Um, yeah, get that on the spreadsheet um, for topics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the. I mean, like, part of the convoluted plot, I mean, I, yes, Scott, part of it is the point, but it does suffer um, with its recut. Uh, there was apparently a massive scene cut where the DA, the Los Angeles DA, who's only mentioned as a kind of background character who's never seen in this, mm. um, the cut that was released, uh, there's apparently a big scene, like, laying out all the evidence so far. It's like, that might have been useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, Pacing I reasons. Well without it, so um, <laughs> it's not, like, it's quite a thing when even the author of the original work didn't know um, whether uh, the chauffeur had killed himself or was murdered. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that sounds like that's not been particularly well thought through. <laughs> but again, turned out to be irrelevant to me and my enjoyment of it. <laughs> it's nothing. Yeah, there we go. Hey, guys, do you know what else, as well as never having seen a Humphrey Bogart movie, do you know what else I'd never seen up until two nights ago? Was it a Marilyn Monroe film? It was! This time I envy you, but, uh, <laughs> rather than pity you. But uh, yes, but, but I shouldn't talk. Scott should talk. He's the one yes, who's going to cover this. We are obliquely referring to Gentlemen Who Wear Bonds, <laughs> obliquely, <laughs> based on the nineteen forty nine stage musical Gentlemen Who Wear Bonds. Sees a pair of showgirls, Marilyn Monroe's ditzy gold digging Lorelei Lee and her best friend Jane Russell's acerbic Dorothy Shaw, head off on a cruise to France for a continental marriage between Lorelei and Tommy Noonan's Gus Edmund, who, in the parlance of her times, is a total simp. However, Gus's father objects to this marriage, for he is not booty blind, and has a private eye. Elliot reads Ernie Malone. To observe and provide proof that Lorelei is more concerned with the size of a man's wallet than their heart. True to form, Lorelei is soon batting her eyelashes at Charles Coburn's Sir Francis Piggy Beekman, a diamond mine owner, and his wife's diamond tiara, meaning the only possible wrinkle in Malone's investigation will come from the fact that he's falling in love with Dorothy. She can use this fact and the power of showtunes to dig Lorelei out of a tiara theft charge in Paris and overcome Esmond Senior's objections to Lorelei and Esmond Junior's relationship. That's perhaps an overly condensed plot recap, but as is fairly common in this sort of thing, the narrative is a fairly minimal framework from which to hang the musical numbers and sections of comic banter. But it's also the reason I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on this film, as in general, I don't like musicals and this style of comedy, and in this particular instance, uh, instance I didn't like the musical numbers or the comic element. So this is a film very much diverging from my tastes <laughs> on enough levels as to render my opinion of it valueless. Now, I am not going to deny the 
iconic necessity of the work. In particular, of course, that they are Diamonds are a girl's best friend number, of which you may have a passing familiarity. Uh, the production values are entirely on point, and the performances are nailing uh, exactly what they appear to be intended to do. I have absolutely no reason to suspect that an audience more inclined to this sort of thing would not uh, very much like this, as its stellar reputation would suggest. However, my wheelhouse is very much on the other side of town and simply cannot sanction this buffoonery. <laughs> I have mentioned before, off the theatre, I think I'm, I'm more open to musicals than anybody else, but I have to like the music in it, and the music in this is terrible, so you know, <laughs> I'm on a hiding to nothing there. And I actually like the, the iconic song, the lyrics just make me angry. It's so vapid and materialistic, and I hate it. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I have seen Marilyn Monroe films before. I don't like Marilyn Monroe. I think she's a terrible actor, and, and this isn't. Uh, this was kind of like put onto her rather than her playing. Like the whole idea of her being this sex symbol and stuff like. I've never found Marilyn Monroe even vaguely attractive, and I don't think she can act. So like, that's not a lot in this film for me. <laughs> um, and then. I just uh, like the the comedy elements all fall flat for me. They've got kind of almost like cartoon sound effects and bits, like people yeah. kind of wide eyed and like. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, and then when this film does, I suppose at least acknowledge the existence of non-white people, given there's the two Arab kids in um, in Paris. But but that's the first time we've seen that since to have and have not, and it's the only. That's the only time there's any people who aren't white in any of these films. But you see how Marlon Monroe's voice goes through my head, that stupid breathy affectation, and I hate it, and she's a terrible actor. Um, <laughs> at least she can sing, which I hadn't really thought about before, but she can at least carry a tune, and it makes it much more difficult for her to do that uh, breathy affectation when she's singing, so it mostly disappears, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> so I can take her more when she's singing. Um, but it's weird, for this film, that seems to be about two very independent women and things like this film quite spectacularly feels a Bechdel test because I don't think there's a single scene in this film that isn't in some way about a man yeah even like there's so many scenes that it's just women it's it's crazy and again Malmour's voice I got honestly by the end of the film every time she spoke I was screaming at the television stop talking um (laughs) I'm not even joking it was driving my head uh driving my Driving, driving my head in. That's not an expression. It yeah, is now. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and there's just everything about this film was kind of rubbing me the wrong way. I, more than that, I was just bored by it. I mean, like, I didn't like the music. But you get creepy things like Lorelai calling her her would be husband daddy. That's oh, thing. no, cringe. Oh. Really icky. It's like that. Is, <laughs> stop that. Stop it now. No, uh, what I actually found. Is by the end, I was kind of thinking more about the things around it instead. So at least I got some interest out of the film. There's like because I know Marilyn was fairly young when she made this because uh, she was only only thirty six when she died, I think. Uh, and she wasn't old at all. She, like, she's one of those people that Hollywood and fame general chewed up and spat out, um, yeah. like Judy Garland as well. It's, and she has she had nothing from my, but my sympathy for that. But I was thinking about things like things that you can't tell from a film at all. Uh, on the film program we made you for just a few weeks ago, actually, Antonia Quirk was recounting the script coordinator on the Misfits having told her 
that the one thing people don't really commonly know about Marilyn Monroe is that she smelt quite bad. She was <laughs> sad though. So, um, I know, um, instinct this laugh, but uh, she was depressed. She didn't wash and certainly by the misfit, she didn't wash her hair. And like, she's got this glamorous thing. So it's, mm. I was kind of, I was thinking about this, like the sadness of her condition, whereas like the, the character I hated, um, yeah. was, was um, a simpleton, you know, up until the point the script called for her to not be a simpleton. And then, so I was thinking about things around it, like, and then I was aware, I hadn't seen Gentleman before once before, but I'd seen several clips, including the scene where basically Jane Russell's gagging for a ride. Um, <laughs> and she's uh, singing in front of the Olympic team, um, the American Olympic team going to the Paris Olympics. And like, I was always really aware that's considered a homoerotic scene. And like, I was watching them think, why is that? Why just because men are scantily clad and not pay attention, is that homoerotic? It's like thinking, is that just because everything's assumed to be for the male gaze? If it's scantily clad women, that's for men. But if it's scantily clad men, that's also for men. What makes that specifically homoerotic? Um, which is obviously, there's bugger all in this film that I actually enjoyed. I was just thinking about everything around it. <laughs> and I did not like this film at all. So, yeah, a film of two halves for me, except the first half is about two minutes long and then the second <laughs> half of the film is the entire rest of the film. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a legs man and like 30 seconds into this movie, my wife said to me, are you okay? And I realised I'd been making noises and I kind of just <laughs> slapped my forehead. I kind of just slapped my forehead and looked at it and said, I'm not going to make it through this. <laughs> because it was it was making me that so damn horny. Dress, those red dresses at the start. Yeah, yeah, it was making me so damn horny. Like the the first two <laughs> minutes of this movie just just about made my face melt off. Um, and then after that came the point where I uh, I got to grips, came to terms with, as you say, Drew Marlon Monroe's um, acting chops. And suffice to say that the talent in this movie is entirely Jane Russell's. <laughs> And yes. I came out of this Absolutely. film like quite a big fan of Jane Russell, if, if not the film itself, but with no desire whatsoever to watch anything else Marilyn Monroe has ever done. I mean, I, I can't, I can't agree with you on finding nothing about her attractive because I think she is quite a startlingly attractive woman. But I would not I, I choose I, I to speak to her in a bar for more than thirty seconds if, if this was the vocal <laughs> affectation that she carried in a day to day way. Uh, this film oh, is she's well regarded as retractive, Craig, and like, oh, yeah. held up. So she's, she's never done anything for me. Uh, it's like, it's, I can see why people would find her attractive, yeah. but for me, like, nothing absolutely flat. She doesn't do anything for me at all. Well, there you go. This this movie is basically just a massive camp meringue, and none of the musical numbers bear any relevance to what's happening. Not that anything's actually happening because it's a couple of people on a boat just trying to get laid. Um, I, I was thinking about the Bechdel test myself, and you're right. It's it's weird because this is a movie in which the two leads are female. Their motivations are entirely autonomous. They they, they are out for themselves. Their agency is their They're own. Independent. Um, and yet, yes, this would at the same measure spectacularly fail the Bechdel test. So it's kind of interesting in that respect. I'm not entirely sure how it's gained the status it has, other than being just from a from a sort of camp classic. Uh, point of view i can i can imagine i can see in that respect why this would be popular but it's um kind of kind of baffling to watch it i would suggest that of all the the stuff that we've spoken about tonight of hawks this is by far and away the most flyaway lightweight Mm -hmm. and most sort of blatantly commercial piece um 
if this were made today, this would be a flat three-star movie that you would say there's a, a really good performance in there from Jane Russell, but it's not enough to uh, to breathe life into a sort of a, a tired, cliched script. And in fairness, there were a couple of moments of humour that were like quite bizarre that did make me laugh. The first time was in the middle of that opening dance number where it cuts to... Um, where it cuts to um, Lorelai's fiance in the crowd, and he's like a bug-eyed seal, just like flapping his hands together, um, <laughs> just like salivating over it. But at, at that point, I was still very much complicit in that. I was kind of sat at the table next to him in that respect, so I can't, <laughs> I can't say too much more than that. But um, yeah, the rest of the film is just a weird mixture of of bad acting on Monroe's part, really sort of like creepy things now and again. And um, I don't mind a musical, but like you say, it very much depends on the music. And in this instance, none of these numbers did anything for me whatsoever. So I, I won't be returning to this film. I'm not, I'm not disappointed I watched it, but I, I'm never going to watch it again. Oh, Lord, no. <laughs> no I, I don't resent having watched it because I had a, a vague interest in it. I was familiar with that. The number I've seen so many clips of the number when she redoes it at the end and that pink dress and stuff. A lot never cared for the songs. Interesting enough to watch it, so I don't resent it for that part. But it's not good. Mm. I really I find very little of merit apart from uh, Jane Russell's clearly the, basically the only person in this film that can yeah. act. That's it. I'm I'm glad that I've had an introduction to Jane Russell now because I will actively seek out a couple more of her movies. That's finding the positive. That's good. There you go. <laughs> yes. Movies where Jane Russell shows her legs. Let me see. Uh, what's Google got? <laughs> yes, where she shows her legs and thankfully not her political views. Oh, um, no. Oh, don't ruin it for me. Why? What did she do or say? Uh, she's just the common regarding Republican pro-lifer. Oh, no. Oh, Scott. I ruin everything, I know. <sighs> well, on that crestfallen disappointment <laughs> we'll round things up for today yeah, so thank you all very much for your attention if you'd like to get in touch with us for discussion on this or any other point that gets to you then you can do so on email at podcast at fudsonfilm.com you can do so on twitter at twitter.com slash fudsonfilm or indeed facebook.com slash fudsonfilm if you're still attached to that then uh, we'll be back with you as soon and until next time take care of yourself and each other ta-ta bye tschüss